listen to the word of our faithful God. From Ruth chapter 1, verses 19 through 22, and then chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I might find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. And so she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. This is God's word. Amen. Good morning. We continue this morning in a series on the book of Ruth. It's a really um, beautiful book, a really neat book. Uh, and at the center of Ruth is the idea of Hesed love, which we've talked about over and over again. A love that is so committed, so enduring, and uh, so demanding that it feels a little bit scary. And I know it must. We must be. We must be getting close to hitting the mark because I've begun to have some of you come into my office to meet with me and say, "Okay, I get." This whole idea of Hesed love, but what about? And then you describe a relationship that's re- that in some cases really destructive, maybe even abusive. Uh, and and I love I love those conversations. I think they're great conversations to be had because when you're thinking like that, when you're really thinking, okay, this 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 the demand of this is is really maybe almost dangerous and inappropriate. You're getting close. You're getting close. You're getting close to the kind of thing that God would be calling us to from this text. Of course, chesed doesn't do away with the need for appropriate boundaries, which are part of any healthy relationship. There's always balance, but we need to know about ourselves. We tend to be minimalists when it comes to love. And so we need to be stretched. And watching Ruth love Naomi does that for us. And so we're going to see here again, we're going to focus, this, last week we focused on Naomi and her bitterness and her uh, her lamenting, we focus again on Ruth here. Next week, we'll talk about this man, Boaz. But for Ruth, one more time, we're going to see just the way that she goes about the work, the hard work of loving her mother-in-law through this very difficult time. And we're going to see three things. You're going to see first the stage direction for Ruth's love and ours, because she is a mirror of the way that we should be living in Christ and obedience to him. Secondly, 
the theater for Ruth's love or the context for her love and ours, which is God's providence, which really comes to bear here in the text. And then lastly, I want you to see the effort behind her love for Naomi and ours. So the stage direction, the theater, the context, and the effort of Ruth's love is really what we're going to be focusing on this morning. Okay, so let's first start with stage direction. Uh, you know what I mean by that, don't you? When I say there's a certain stage direction to love, on, when you're doing a, a, a show, you put people in, you know, stage, center stage, spotlight on, and there's others that are behind the scene. You put everybody in the right place on the stage. Well, when you love, there's a certain, there's a certain place that you take. Uh, and, and I'm just going to give you a hint. It's not, it's not in the spotlight center stage. Now, the Bible warns of doing things in order to be seen by others. In Matthew chapter 6, for example, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father in heaven who sees. But do in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So Jesus gives us this instruction because he knows that our hearts long to be all alone, center stage, with the spotlight on our face. That we just love it. Because the human heart is self-exalting. We want to be first. We want to be at the very center, and the Bible calls this pride. We want all eyes on us, all eyes on us, which is why social media is the greatest invention of uh, the evil mad scientist laboratories of hell <laughs> who are conspiring to try to cure the world of godliness. It's the greatest invention that has ever come out of hell. Because now with social media, we live life to be seen. We go to places for the picture, not to enjoy the view. Uh, nothing, nothing happens in secret anymore. And, and it's, really, it's a problem. And so we are more tempted than ever to live and do good for the sake of being recognized by other, maybe than ever before, like the religious people that Jesus warned about in Matthew 6, who would literally go into public squares and say their prayers for everyone to hear instead of staying at home and praying in secret. They would, they would hire people to go out in public with them and blow trumpets to get everybody's attention, and then once, once they had a crowd, once everybody's eyes were on them, then they would give their money to the poor. Now, we are not so daring but we're just as sinful. And the essence of sin is the desire to be gloried in. The chief end of man, we're told in our catechism, is to glorify God. The chief sin of man is to deny God his glory and to try to keep it for ourselves. And so I was struck uh, this week reading about the Corinthians' generosity. We read in 1 Corinthians in our community Bible reading. And Paul said they were so generous that it produced thanksgiving to God. Do you remember that? The Corinthians' generosity left the Macedonians thinking about how great God was because of what they had done. They glorified God, Paul said. Now, sin is the desire to take back the spotlight from God and shine it on ourselves and all of the good things that we're trying to do. It's doing things that, in order to leave people thinking about how great we are. And so, we have to, we have to broaden our sense of sin. Sin is not just being bad. It's also being good so people will pay attention and be impressed with you. That's sinful, too. Sin is wanting to replace God as the object of other people's glory. It's saying in your heart, he must decrease so that I can increase. So for moms, and I'm going to make a lot of applications to moms. Moms, you're kind of in the crosshairs today because it's your day. So we can make some applications. But for moms, it, what would this mean? It would mean mothering your children 
in a way that you make sure that you are the center of their world and not their father in heaven, which is damaging. We are glory robbers. And moms, I hate to ruin your day, but you need to know, I mean, we're going to celebrate you all day, okay? So as we celebrate, you just remember, you're glory robbers too, but we love you. We do. And so here's the problem. Here's the problem. If you're motivated by being seen, then you're not motivated by love for God or love for others. Do good in secret, Jesus says. Why? Because God sees, and you should be doing whatever you're doing for his glory in the first place. If no one else sees, God sees, and that should be enough. If you were doing things just for his glory and not your own, it would be okay if no one else saw but God. Jesus said the Father only rewards the good done in secret. Why? Because if no one else sees and you do it anyway, then you really are doing it for him and not for yourself. In the same way, if you do good to others to get glory, if you love them so that they will love you in return, then the truth is you're doing it for yourself and not for them to begin with. You're using them. You're not loving them. I know that's hard. I know that's hard, but it's true, and, and it'll eventually catch up with you when you're busy helping others and nobody, nobody seems to be paying any attention or when you work and you work and you work and you, and you just are, do all kinds of good things and the thank you never comes. And then you end up feeling completely invisible. That's a hard place to be, isn't it? Now, if you're motivated by love for God and for others, then when you get to that place, it won't bother you because God sees. And, and it doesn't matter whether other people do, but if you're motivated by being seen, then when others don't see, when the kindness isn't returned, when the thank you never comes, then you'll get upset. You'll get upset. Paul Miller, in his book on uh, Ruth, he said it this way. He says, and it's just so helpful to me. He, says, he said, pride cannot bear the weight of unequal love. Pride cannot bear the weight of unequal love. I've done more for you than you've done for me, and that upsets me. That's pride. If you do good and you get nothing in return, and you keep doing it, that's when you know it's love. Everything else is pride. And so we see a principle, and the principle is that love requires humility because the more you love, the more invisible you will become. And this happens to Ruth in our text. So let's just go through the text for a minute. We're going to get to the text now, and I want you to see. I want you to see verse, uh, verse 16 through 18 in, in chapter 1. Um, Ruth saves Naomi's life. Naomi gets companionship. She gets a caretaker. She literally will die uh, except that Ruth comes to her aid. Ruth, you know, Naomi gets all of these things, but what's fascinating, and we pointed this out a couple of weeks ago, is that this amazing movement of love from Ruth to Naomi, Naomi gets companionship, she gets a caretaker, she gets life, and Ruth doesn't even give a thank you. It's startling, it's unbelievable, this expression of sacrifice and generosity on Ruth's part, and Naomi's so frozen in her bitterness that in verse 18, the text says that her response is just that she said no more. It must have broken Ruth's heart. When they come to Bethlehem in verse 19, you got to kind of see the implications of the text here. The women go right to Naomi. Is this Naomi? And they, they kind of beeline for Naomi. 
and they thrust Ruth aside. It's kind of implied in the text. They don't ask anything about her. Who is this This with Naomi? They only, they only focus their attention on Naomi. And the indication is that she's completely ignored. No one asked her about her husband, who died too, by the way. No one said, who's this? The, woman, the women call Naomi, um, you know, they, they, they go to Naomi, but they just seem to completely ignore Ruth Ruth doesn't even just she's even on their mind they just throw her to the side and she's there while this great reunion happens and then they call Naomi by her name they call her pleasant and you look there in verse 21 she corrects them call me Mara which means bitter for I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty and Ruth is right there did the Lord bring her back empty She had this wonderful woman who had saved her life through her sacrificial love. Ruth is right there. Naomi says, I've got nothing. And Ruth is right next to her. And I know, I know, I know you felt that. I know there's been a time in your life where you felt that and what that feels like. It's an incredible insult. And the lesson is just this. The lesson is that love often leaves you unappreciated and ignored. One of the hardest parts of love is that you can love others, but there may be no one to love you. That the very act of loving can make you lonely. To love means learning to live in the shadows like Ruth. When you love, you you disappear. Those are Paul Miller's words again. When you love, you make room for others. You don't take up the space. You, uh, You move backstage. You move out of the spotlight. The work of love is not center stage stuff. It's folding laundry and washing dishes and a thousand other things that happen when no one else is looking. Like the little elves that come in the middle of the night. The kids think little elves come in the middle of the night and make all this stuff happen. I mean, to love means learning to live in the shadows. And it is astounding to see Jesus doing this. He really is our model for this. If you read the Gospels carefully, you'll notice that he often stayed deliberately small. He, he, he stayed at the edge so that others could emerge. When he began his ministry and it began to gain too much momentum, now who's ever done this? What minister has ever followed this model of a PR campaign? His, his ministry is really beginning to gain momentum, and what does he do? He tells his followers to keep quiet about who he is. He lessens the noise about, about his, you know, his ministry. He intentionally avoided the big cities and spent most of his time in backwater towns. And these, these were strategies for love. Strategies for love. On every page of the Gospels, Jesus is decreasing so that others can increase. Because love is the opposite of pride. That's the first point. There are no trophies for love. Not until we get to heaven. We love in secret where only God sees. And that's the key, actually. So we come to the second point this morning. Well, How do you keep loving when you get no thank you? How do you keep doing good as we see Ruth doing here when all it gets you is to be ignored and underappreciated? And the answer is that you have to know, the second point, you have to know that when no one else sees, God sees. You have to know the theater for love. In war, you know, there's a theater, and the theater is the landscape where the battle is fought. And war, love is a lot like war. It has a theater too. It has a context. And the context is the second important feature of the text that we come to, the providence of God. Providence of God. What do we mean? What's that? What does that doctrine really mean? Well, let me illustrate it this way. If you if you go on a mission trip, uh, the people that, that you go to see usually want to send you home with a present. So I remember years ago, uh, one time I was in India, I was given a gift, and I opened the box, and it's really embarrassing because typically you're you're up on stage and everybody's watching, and they want you to open this present. And you're you know, 
And typically it's some little thing that you think, oh, that's, that's nice. Uh, and I, so I got this box and I opened it up and I uh, couldn't tell what it was. It looked like some sort of stitching, but the, the threads were all a mess. It was mangled together. It was uneven. You know, it was just a big mess. And so I thought, well, okay, well. And then, then I flipped it over and I realized that on the other side there's this beautiful picture. There's a cross, I can't, I, you know, something I can't, I can't remember. But, um, you know, there, the stitching on the back end looked all messy, but you turned it over and it was this nice kind of cross-stitch thing that they made for me. And when we talk about the providence of God, we mean that God is a master weaver who takes the threads of our lives, which often look like a tangled mess to us, and in, in truth is, is arranging them to make something beautiful for his purposes and his glory. We just have to flip it over to see. A lot of the time, all we can see is the threads all tangled up. We don't have the winding lens large enough to see how they all come together. And so when you're on the edge of self-pity, it can feel like God just doesn't see either. And all, all you can sense in those times is his absence, but that's just his way. Providence teaches us that even when it seems that he has forgotten us, he is still there. That's the truth. It's an interesting feature of the text that the characters in the story in Ruth's book here mention Yahweh more than 20, uh, more than 20 times in their dialogues as they're describing the events that are taking place that they're a part of. The narrator, however, only uses his name twice. So take verse 3, for example. We see verse 3 in chapter 2 that Ruth, we're told, just happened to come to the field belonging to Boaz. Now, we know this is an important detail in the story because of the way we're introduced in verse 1 to Boaz. So chapter 2, verse 1 kind of comes out of nowhere. It's a foreshadowing. It's, it's a way of the author telling us, this man Boaz I'm introducing you to, he's going to become really important in the future. Pay attention to him. He's important to the story I'm telling. And Ruth happens to find herself in the field belonging to Boaz. And so we know this is significant. But So why not say it differently? Why, why does the narrator not say, and then Yahweh led Ruth to the field of Boaz? Instead, he says, she just happened to come upon a field who belonged to this man. And the answer is that God's guidance isn't always so obvious to us. It's much more subtle most of the time. God is not always obvious. He stays in the shadows at the edges of our stories. And so one of the reasons God commends practicing righteousness in secret, as we've seen, away from the public eye is because it is his own way of working in our lives. I count at least three times the narrator highlights God's activity without directly connecting it to him. Because again, that's what life feels like sometimes. First, when Naomi and Ruth get to Bethlehem, we're told in verse 22 of chapter 1 that it was the beginning of the barley harvest. The perfect time. They needed food and there was more food than at any other time of the year. Secondly, as they settle in and Ruth decided to go to work, she, verse 3, just happened to end up in the field of Boaz. Number three, verse four, Boaz just happened to come into the field at just the right time to see Ruth working there. Even in verse four, you have that word behold. And it's amazing, the author's saying, that all this is happening this way. And this is providence, not coincidence, not accident, not karma, not luck. This is God at work. And that's the point. And it assures us of three things. It assures us first that God does in fact see that he is paying attention. That you're, you're not allowed to keep score in love. You know that, right? You're not allowed to keep score in love. But he is keeping score. And he sees when you love in secret. Everybody else might miss it. 
but he doesn't. And he promises that one day, Luke 8, 17, every hidden thing will be revealed. Isn't that such good news? Doesn't that help you to know that every kindness that goes unnoticed in this life will one day be brought to life and will be celebrated forever? God sees. Nothing takes him by surprise. Nothing gets past him. Don't be deceived by how dark and how random or meaningless things may look on the surface. There's always more going on. Flip it over and you'll see that the different threads that seem out of joint are really weaving together something beautiful. And there's always more going on than what meets the eye. Now, moms, let me talk to you for a minute and, every, and all the applications of this. You, moms, you really do do all the dirty work. And one day a year is not enough to make up for all the thank yous that we miss. Motherhood is boot camp for a life of love. Because children have no way, particularly when they're very young, of appreciating all it takes to keep life moving. With kids, you have no choice but to live, to learn to live with being underappreciated and underpaid. And so when you're up in the middle of the night, moms, with the baby, and your husband is sawing logs in the bedroom, and he has no way of knowing the hours it took to get her back to sleep, God sees. He knows. Providence assures us of that, but not only does he see, it also assures us that he also loves, that God not only sees what's going on in your life, but he loves you in the middle of it. He loves the people you're trying to love. That was such good, I just kind of can't, you know, that just, you know, as I'm doing this, things kind of come that I don't expect. And that was one of those things that really kind of came on me this week that I didn't expect to know that God loves the people that I'm trying to love. Isn't that good news? Isn't that comforting? To know that you're not alone, you're not the only one loving the people you're trying to love. That's important to remember. You're not in charge of their story. You're a part of the story that God is writing, but we are poor authors of other people's stories. And if you don't know, if you don't know that God loves you and that he loves the people you're trying to love, you'll try to control things too much. Ruth doesn't do that. You don't see that here from her. She doesn't try to control Naomi. It's pretty amazing. She, she doesn't insert herself into Naomi's story. She doesn't demand that people pay attention to her and that she get her way. She, they, they needed food. She went into the fields. She just stays on the edges and serves. That's all she does. You can see her just kind of hovering on the edges of Naomi's life. And whenever Naomi needs something, she jumps in to, to provide it. She did chesed because she knew that God does chesed. There's an old hymn. I think we're going to sing it maybe in a minute. That says, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. So the idea of frowning providence really gets at what life feels like sometimes. That it really does feel like gray clouds and God must be frowning down upon us because things tend to, you know, go bad and sometimes go from bad to worse. But behind every providence, the writer of the hymn says, is a smiling face. Ruth knew that. And we should know it even more intuitively and fundamentally than she did because we know more of God's heart than she did. It's been revealed to us since her day. Ruth went low. She took no consideration of her own self going into the fields to love and provide for her mother-in-law. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God, made himself nothing, took on human flesh, became a servant, and went to the lowest place to die on a cross of love to provide for our greatest need. Ruth became vulnerable in love, but Jesus became vulnerable to the point of death to save sinners. If you're in Christ, then you have God's smile over you because of the work of Jesus on the cross on your behalf. No matter how big the frown of providence might seem, behind it is a smiling face. And you can be absolutely 100% sure of that. 
So moms, let me talk to you again. Moms, God loves the children you love even more than you do. And that's just as true when their lives seem to be falling apart and you're worried about them and it feels like you can't do anything to correct it as it is when everything's going great. It's hard for moms to not think of themselves as the author of their children's stories, but you are not. Their good, good father is. And he loves them far more than you do. Let him. But thirdly, not only that God God sees and that God loves, but thirdly, we can see that this means he enters the story. He often enters the story when we need him the most, and that's what's happening as Naomi and Ruth make their way back to Bethlehem right at the beginning of the barley harvest. And as Ruth got up and just happened to come into the field of Boaz, and as Boaz just happened to come into the field to see her there working, life may feel like a series of random unrelated events that make no sense, but that's not it at all. And I like the way Paul Miller put it. This is another one of those things that was really helpful to me this week. He said this. He said, we experience life as if we're walking backward. The future is completely unknown. It's behind us. We see the present only through peripheral vision, through a kind of fog. Only the past that we're looking back on has clarity, and that clarity increases with time, he said. So wise. Here's what he means. He says, if you're going through a really hard time, if you're going through a confusing time where you're just not sure what God's doing, you're not sure if you can trust him because it's not going the way you want it to, then the further away from it you get, the easier it is to make sense of all of it. You start to see as time goes by how all the different strands that at the time seem disconnected and, and you know, falling apart actually have been woven together to create something beautiful. But in the moment, in the present, everything is a little bit fuzzy. It's hard to know what God's doing right now in this moment in time, how everything's going to work together. You might get little glimpses every now and then that God's doing something, a phone call at just the right time, you know, you overhear a conversation. This has happened to us. We've overheard conversations other people are having that solve problems that we've been dealing with with our children. And that's enough. John Piper put it this way. He said, God is always doing a thousand things in your life, and you're probably aware of two or three of them. It's impossible to know all he's doing, but it's enough to know that God is at work, that he might seem absent, but he isn't. He sees and he loves, and when it's necessary, he breaks into the story in not so obvious ways to bring about the good he's promised. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible is John 5, 17, where Jesus says, my father is working until now, and I am working. I love that. You know why? Because it means we woke up today into a day. We go out to our work every day into a day where God has already been working before we lift our head off the pillow. God is always at work. He's doing a thousand things that go unseen. And so it's like working, working with your little kids in the yard. Have you ever tried to do that? Working with your little kids in the yard? When my kids were little, it was important to me that they learned to mow the yard. But, but when they were really little, when they first started doing that, I had to go out first and, and mow the hard parts. I'd edge around the sprinklers to make sure they didn't run over them and destroy them. Uh, I'd get into the corners, and then, you know, I'd leave the big patch of square yard right in the middle. That was the easiest thing. And I'd say, okay, go out there and, and do your work. So they were working, but it was my work ahead of time that allowed them to do their work. That's that's how I like to think of that verse. My father's always at work. Now, so moms, when you have a little baby and you dream about all the things that will happen throughout the course of that child's life, you need to know you're entering into a story that is already in progress from all eternity. 
tens of thousands of days, all arranged and prepared ahead of time, every day, every single day, charged with the energy of God's love for that child. That's the context in which you do the work of mothering, in which we all do the work of love. So that leads us to our last consideration as we try to come to a close this morning. So we see a a certain stage direction for love. We see the theater, the context within which we do our love, that God is always at work. His providence is always weaving together the parts of our life that seem disjointed. But then thirdly, then let's talk about the effort of love. So what's the connection between God's work and our work? If God's always at work, then, then do we do nothing? Or do we actually do more? And what you'll see as you read in Ruth chapter 2 as we go along is that the text commends Ruth for her work ethic. It's one of the big things that jumps out at the text. It's what we're being taught here. It's what gets Boaz's attention to begin with. He marvels at how how hard she's worked in the fields. Verse 7, for example, from early morning until now, uh, he's told, this is the report, except for a short rest. Now later... The narrator tells us that Ruth was able to take home an ephah of barley. That's, that's later in the chapter. And that's a huge amount. It's there on purpose. It's more, it's more really, it's more than most men could have done in a, in a day. Ruth is able to accomplish more than most people and most men. And so Ruth's work ethic is being pointed out to us. And so the lesson is this. The lesson is that love is a lot of work. Resting in Christ is an act of faith, but laziness is sinful sloth. Remember, it's quitting when love becomes hard. It's wearying of doing good. Love and laziness are opposites. There is no minimalism in chesed love. Minimalism is good when it comes to stuff. Never good when it comes to people. And so let's finish by talking about that. What's the connection between God's work in providence and ours? And we learn from the scriptures first and from this text that God is a God of grace, that our relationship to him is based not on our doing for him, but his doing for us, that he is a God who loves to do the heavy lifting, that he is attracted, what he's attracted to in us. Get this. You, th- okay, just amen moment coming. You ready? What, what he is attracted to in you and me is not our hard work, not our talent, not our smarts, but our need. Can you believe that? What attracts him to you is your need for him. We learned this in 1 Chronicles 17, which we read also this past week, where King David wants to build a house for the Lord. Do you remember the story? David says, I, I want to build God a house. I want to honor the Lord for all he's done for me. He's been so good to me. I want to, I want to do something for him. And yet, as the story goes on, the Lord will have nothing to do with it. And it's shocking, at least to David and, and to his pastor too, by the way, Nathan, because no pastor would ever assume that God was not in a building project for the church. And the Lord says, no, we're not going to do that. It's shocking because it was the way things went in the ancient world. The kings were expected to honor their God for blessing them with success and victory. And it was what all the gods of all of the peoples expected, but not the Lord, not our God, not the God of the Bible. He said to David, "Is absolutely, I, I can't get over it every time we read. He said, no, David, listen, you got to get this right. This is the way this is going to work. You're not going to build a house for me, but I'm going to build a house for you. That's what he says. I'm not like the other gods. I'm a God of grace. You don't build for me. I build for you. It's astounding. And if God is a God of grace, then how do you have a relationship with him? Well, the Bible says that salvation is by grace, that that it is the gift of God, that it is not our doing, that salvation is God's work from beginning to end. And the Bible is also clear that that doesn't mean there's, there's no work for us to do. Grace is the opposite of earning, not effort. We need to make sure to remember that. 
That's important to remember. Sinclair Ferguson notes that many of the imperative tense verbs in the Bible occur in the passive voice. So imperative tense, this is English majors. Imperative tense means there's something for you to do. There's a command. Passive voice means it's something that's happening to you, not something that you're affecting on your own. Now think about that. So we are, all of our life of holiness as Christians is to be actively engaged in something in which we are in truth passive. Here's my favorite. Strive to enter God's rest. Well, how in the world do you do that? (laughs) Strive to enter God's rest, Hebrews 4. Have you ever thought about that? How do you do that? Make every effort to make no effort when it comes to your salvation. (laughs) And yet there's work. Listen to Paul. By the grace of God, I am what I am, 1 Corinthians 15. By the grace of God, I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Grace doesn't make you lazy. It makes you work hard. Lazy spirituality in the name of grace is an abomination. Grace makes you do more, not less, because your life is full of amazement at what God has done for you. The gospel transforms all of our I have to's into I can't believe I get to's. If God is a God of grace, then what is it like to live with him? What's life like with him? He's constantly doing. Men, no pressure, but it's roses on the dinner table just because every night with the God of the Bible. He's always going first and then calling us up into what he is doing. We're never on our own. Our lives are never dependent upon what strength or strategies we can piece together. Whatever chesed love we do for others, it is the only the echo of his chesed love for us. His love's always first. And so if God's providence is a real thing, if he is ultimately intimately involved in your life, planning, orchestrating, weaving the different strands into something beautiful, if he is always at work like that, how does that affect your work? Do you do less or do you do more? And here Ruth is our example. If you believe in God's providence, it makes you work harder. If you believe the world is charged with God's love. If you're convinced that there is good waiting for you around every corner, you become more courageous. You take more risks. You get more engaged. You become more hopeful for people so you walk a longer road with them. Do you see? Knowing God, knowing that he's always at work makes you do more, not less. But let's be honest. Let's don't, let's don't shy away from the truth. Love is hard. Amen? It takes, it's a lot of hard work. There are very few thank yous. It requires a ton of humility because you're invisible. But don't forget, bear with me here. Don't forget that the greatest heroes always hide themselves. And sometimes uh, they're even mistaken for the villain. That's the truth. Uh, Now, this is an embarrassing story, but I'll tell it just to finish. I'm a huge Chris Nolan fan. And I'm a huge Batman fan, so the Dark Knight trilogy was like the greatest thing in the world ever for me. (laughs) You wouldn't think there would be spiritual truth in these movies, but at the end of the second Batman, at the end of the second movie, Batman saves the day, if you remember this, okay? He's the hero. I'm I'm embarrassed to tell this, but he's the hero. But in order to be the real hero, he had to live with being thought of as the villain, if you remember he had, to, he had to play the role of the villain because it was what the city needed for him. He had, to, he had done all the good. He had done all the good. He had done all the saving, and, and it, would, it was going to go completely unseen. It was going to be completely uncelebrated and unappreciated. He was the hero, and nobody was going to know about it. Worse, he was going to be thought of by the people as the villain. 
and he rides off, you know, if you remember the end of the, of, of the Dark Knight, and, you know, he rides off, and, and, and he can take it because, uh, you know, he, he wants to do with the city, and it's just this thing, and I sat there, literally, I just sat there, and I fell apart in the movie theater, I'm not kidding. I mean, everybody just got up to walk out, and I'm just, I just couldn't move. I couldn't move, and I'm crying, and I'm like, this is Batman. What the heck is going on? Batman, okay? Like, I'm embarrassed. I was embarrassed then. I'm embarrassed now. <laughs> but I just couldn't get over it um, because that's what love feels like. It's hard, and, and there are wounds and scars, you know, that, that are painful for me. So just remember, when no one sees, God sees. And when no one says thank you, remember, God promises to reward every secret act of love for his sake. And when you feel overwhelmed, don't forget, remember the gospel. God is at work in Christ in a thousand ways that you're not aware of. You're not alone. You're never alone. You will never be a debtor to him. It will, always, it will always figure out an unequal in your favor when it comes to him. And knowing that is what gives you, what propels you and gives you the energy to go and to love wherever he's called you to love. So let's pray uh, that he continues to do that in us. Father, we need your help. We need your grace because um, faith energizes love. And so as we believe in you, it means a life of love towards others. You really do call us into the mess of, of a life of loving others. And yet it's scary. It's Full of, uh, full of uncertainties and, and full of being mistaken and misunderstood and being unseen and, and being, having to, forcing ourselves to be vulnerable, which is scary and painful. It just, it, there, it'd be just so much easier just to lock our hearts up in a casket of selfishness and just say, no, I'm just going to live for me. I'm just going to do this nice little safe thing where I don't worry about other people and I only worry about me. But uh, what a wasted life that would be. What a small little sorry way of living that would be and yet we're so tempted we're so tempted out of fear to do just that and so would you remind us even in this last song or two that we sing that you are constantly that your love is like an ocean we're swimming in as we sang a little while ago underneath us all around us the current we're being driven along by the current of your love we're a great picture and so father come and and convince us and remind us of that, and then give us wisdom as we try to follow you in this great act of love that you've called us to, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so I know you have plans for lunch, uh, so thanks for bearing with us as we had a longer service than normal this morning. As you go to celebrate your moms, don't forget, and moms, as you go to be celebrated, don't forget that we celebrate them for his sake. So celebrate the Father in heaven who loves us. This day is charged with his love. That's the promise of these words. So receive the benediction and then go and celebrate together today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.